Inde. Bonjour, Monica. Bonjour, Bruno. Uh, this is Bruno Larvol uh, with Larvol and Friends. Every every week we talk with a friend of our of our company. Uh, first, uh, my usual infomercial. Uh, Larvol is a is a SaaS company. We sell software and uh, data solutions in healthcare, in particular, uh, to pharmaceutical companies. And uh, medical affairs is a big uh, target for our products. Uh, competitive intelligence, R and D. Uh, commercial. Uh, we love everything that has to do with data, healthcare, drugs, uh, drugs and bugs, I would say, <laughs> uh, and increasingly, obviously, uh, AI. And, and today we're going to touch about a, a number of these items with uh, Dr. Monica Lamba Seni, who is someone I know for quite a few years. So wonderful to uh, reconnect with you uh, here on the podcast, Monica. Same here, Bruno. Thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast and a very warm hello to all your listeners. I know, Bruno, we go a very long way back, I guess, somewhere around 2006 or 2007. Yes. Um, I met you at ASCO in Chicago and uh, I was presenting on gastrointestinal stromal tumors, uh, our experience in a tertiary cancer referral center in India. And I had traveled from Bangalore, India to Chicago for the presentation. And I still remember meeting you around that point of time. And it was exciting to know that in those early 2000s, you know, you had a company which was completely virtual. So it was something which was very interesting to me. And, you know, I, I have seen that the company has grown over the last so many years. And it's exciting to be on this platform with you. Well, so, it, it, thank you for rewinding the tape, uh, so yeah. to speak, and re reminding me about the ASCO. I was at ASCO a few days ago, and it, it was quite extraordinary. The ASCO, of course, the, the largest um, uh, cancer conference in the world. I think we had 42,000 participants, although uh, Taylor Swift was in town at the same time, and she has 72 Okay, so so she was bigger than ASCO, right? Uh, but yes. yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I guess ASCO is like an annual pilgrimage for you know for all sure. people who are engaged in oncology and healthcare around oncology. So yeah, I uh, think it's an annual pilgrimage, and uh, it is. I guess even for people who do not attend ASCO, like I could not make it this year or the year before that. But, you know, we continuously observe and uh, read whatever is being discussed at ASCO or whatever comes out after, you know, ASCO or its proceedings. So it definitely is a very important conference as far as oncology is concerned. Yes. The, the biggest announcements of progress is made in that conference, which is yes. always held in, in Chicago at the McCormick Center. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned the virtual nature of, of our company, and you also alluded to the fact that things have evolved, changed, grown. And of course, with the pandemic, we were not special anymore because many, many companies went completely virtual. Uh, but knowing me, uh, I wanted to go to the next level. And so you should be ready to, to, to buy and read a book soon that I'm writing mm -hmm, with, a, with a ghostwriter about how we are the first company. 150 people to be completely managed in not just remotely, but in virtual reality. So instead of Zoom and Teams call and so on, we put a headset on and we meet with our colleague, including 
our great pro executive producer Shahir Sheikh, who organized this podcast today. We put a put we, we put the the headset on, and we meet in all kind of extraordinary places. This morning we were on some kind of weird planet, and we were talking about various things together in, in a red on a red planet somehow. So mm -hmm. this is this is we're pushing the envelope of um, of what can be done remotely. And in a way, we, we ask people to come to the office, actually, except mm -hmm. it's a virtual office. We say, no, 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 you have to come, please. You have to put the headset on and you have to come in avatar, not completely in person. Right, right. No, I understand. And, you know, and also that this concept of virtual reality, I think I would be very interested in attending one of your offices some point of time, you know, just for experience. Uh, we would love to have you. Do you have a headset already? Yes. Uh, at the moment, not right now, but yeah. Okay. Otherwise, I do, yeah. We, we'll organize that. Shahir and I will we'll invite you and we'd love to have you. We actually have uh, keynote speakers in many of our events and it'd be mm -hmm. to have you be a, a keynote speaker. Um, before we continue and talk about the role of data and AI in oncology and in your field in particular, pathology, uh, give us a quick uh, snippet of your, of your experience, of your professional journey. Uh, Bruno, you, I think, have a fair idea about my background, but for the listeners, um, I'm a board certified pathologist with 15, I would say now going to 20 years of experience in the diagnosis of both uh, benign and malignant diseases by cytopathology, histopathology, and also integrating molecular pathology. I worked in academic institutes, research centers as a part of my PhD, and I'm presently the scientific director of pathology at Q-Square Solutions, IQVIA at Edinburgh, UK. My experience uh, spans across different countries, doing my MBBS and MD in India, then my PhD in molecular pathology in Belgium, and now working towards my FRC path here in the UK. So it is basically, you see three continents, uh, different countries. I speak multiple languages. I'm the author and reviewer of many publications, and I am passionate about digital pathology and development of AI-driven pathology. So that is in a nutshell about me. Well, what's interesting about pathology is that people from the beginning of AI, Monica, thought uh, that's an area where AI can play a role in terms of finding pattern and using image recognition and perhaps even at some point, and you'll tell us whether we already at that point, in some cases being better than the human eye. Where, where are we on that uh, uh, on, on that direction and, and in terms of at least maybe histopathology, uh, uh, is AI going to compete with you or even um, uh, sort of uh, make your, your skills, uh, just to be provocative, obsolete? <laughs> uh, that's a very good question, uh, Bruno. And uh, let me just, you know, start by answering your question by saying that, you know, uh, Artificial intelligence we know are now is now being applied to let's say a lot of medical subspecialties like ophthalmology or dermatology or radiology actually for a long time now and now pathology. Now I would say that the much awaited adoption of AI in pathology and the transformation of pathology 
um, is happening at a much slower pace than we observed in other fields like radiology. So, because if you look at radiology, the first, uh, you know, the reports of AIUs date back to, I guess, somewhere in early 90s, when it was used to detect microcalcifications in mammography and was more commonly known as computer-aided detection. And now with, you know, AI, we have the, we have the emergence of radiomics, where digital images that are normally interpreted by radiologists in a qualitative way are transformed into quantitative data. With pathology, I think the, the first thing was to, you know, rip, not replace, but at least have digital imaging or digital imaging along with the microscope as well. So, for pathology, the push to adopt digital means was uh, precipitated by the pandemic in the big way. In a big way, the pandemic also precipitated a change in the regulatory climate around digital uh, pathology. Because in March 2020, the College of American Pathologists won a waiver uh, from Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services regarding remote pathology work. A month later, the FDA issued guidelines for the remote reporting of pathology slides during the pandemic. And recently, I guess around maybe three weeks earlier somewhere, if I am not wrong with the date, somewhere around 16th May, uh, FDA issued permanent guidelines around viewing slides remotely. So now you see that, you know, we understand that pathology, which is a very image-rich speciality, is... Um, a very strong candidate to be impacted by advances in AI. And uh, right now, if you ask me, you know, the key applications of uh, AI in anatomic pathology include uh, assessment of prognostic biomarkers, mm -hmm. let's say like CHI-67 in breast cancer, or tumor grading in prostate cancer, or diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer in lymph nodes, or also focusing on automated quality control. Other AI applications, which some of them even have the CIVD mark here in Europe are, you know, the ERPR or the CHI-67 staining. We also have focus on, uh, I see in emerging software on counting lymphocytes or, you know, looking at TILS or software for QCing the slide. However, despite all the progress we have, you know, few algorithms are currently in routine clinical use. And also I see that there is a dearth of studies evaluating their impact in um, clinical settings. So I don't think that the question, coming back to your question, that um, whether AI will make a pathologist obsolete, the answer to that question is no. Because AI can be a very good, I would say, a diagnostic aid or an adjunct or like an assistant to the pathologist where, you know, it can do uh, monotonous tasks like, let's say, looking at mitosis or counting at mitosis for making these tasks, which are very laborious and monotonous and time consuming for the pathologist to get this done for the pathologist in an automated and probably a more detailed and uh, precise manner. But will it replace the pathologist? No. The answer to the question is that the pathologist who will adapt AI will mm -hmm. replace the pathologist who will not adapt AI. Uh, and so right now, in your current practice, uh, how much are you using AI, if at all? 
No, we are definitely, you know, trying to integrate AI into our, since I work in a clinical trial atmosphere, we do have requests from, you know, sponsors wherein we are want, which they are wanting to integrate AI along with obviously visual scoring of the slides for trials as, as an exploratory basis. Now, the interesting point would be when this exploratory, when these exploratory studies actually become you know, a, a part of clinical or routine clinical or diagnostic setting. So that translational gap, I think we still have a lot of translational gap. And that is something which I guess in the coming years we will need to address or is being addressed uh, now as well when we speak. Yeah, I understand. Um, are you following uh, a different part of AI as well, the whole um, large language model, uh, ChatGPT? Have you have you played with that part of AI yourself? Uh, I guess when it all broke around, was it last year, November, somewhere around that, that uh, time? September 22, yes. September, yeah. Okay, so I, I somehow, you know, I think it was yeah, around autumn. So I have played around with a bit. And we do have, you know, talks of generative AI, but uh, I think at this point of time where we are looking in for AI in medicine, it is not that we have to build, a, you know, an isolated algorithm. We need to build a digital transformation. So that kind of transformation and that kind of, you know, um, a digital transformation of medicine for that, we will have to be very, very uh, careful. We will have to be very mindful to uh, address that significant AI translation gap. Now, why is this gap? It could be because of, you know, we have a lot of ethical concerns. We have um, algorithmic bias concerns. Now, those bias concerns could be due to, let's say, patient gender and race algorithmic bias. There are concerns regarding patient privacy or patient safety outcomes. So all this have contributed to a significant translational gap in, I would say, pathology or for that matter, in medicine as well. So for all this to, you know, uh, for the adoption of these AI into healthcare domains or into daily clinical practice, AI systems need to be approved by regulators. It needs to be integrated with the hospital record systems and standardized to a good degree that you know, similar products work in a similar fashion. We also need to train the clinicians or the diagnosticians for this. And who will pay for this? You know, it needs to be paid by somebody. So paid for by public or private payer organizations and updated over time in the field. So I think these challenges are definitely there. And uh, for medicine to adopt this and routine clinical settings, mm -hmm. these are some things which we need to work on. Um, if you think about the ChatGPT and, and the similar AI language model, you mentioned mm -hmm. data privacy. So um, uh, have you ever asked a clinical question to ChatGPT? Uh, in my experience, no, not really. No, okay. I haven't the asked a clinical question to ChatGPT. Okay. I think I, initially when I, uh, you know, just played around with a bit, it was more for general questions, not for medicine-related sure. questions. Sure. Because to be honest, as a as a uh, pathologist myself, I would like to say that I would like to answer those questions. 
Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> but there is a question about data privacy, which is interesting, which is that if I describe a case to chat GPT and I ask a question in oncology, right. um, am I breaching patient privacy guidelines? So in other words, is the fact that the, the profile or the condition of that patient all of a sudden is going to be used to further train the AI, what does it mean? I mean, arguably, people cannot know about that patient or right. they cannot probably even re-triangulate who that is, although that could be an open question. Um, but we're, we're training an AI based on that patient in, in some ways. Uh, true, now, true. now I, I think that the, the power of these models is, is going to be incredible and that we're going to be surprised how quickly, even in medicine, where, as you know, things tend to be slower for many good reasons, I think right. we're going to be surprised how quickly AI will become um, needed uh, and, and not go away uh, after, uh, after a while. So this is an area where Laval is working on, and we have a, a ton of very interesting projects not so much about pathology, but um, other aspects of uh, other aspects of AI applied to healthcare. Do, do you rely on social media conversations in uh, your professional interactions, and also even in the sharing of knowledge in your field? Yes, we do. We do because uh, we realize it is a very important. Uh, you know, uh, these social media platforms are very important as far as communication or as far as, you know, exchange of information regarding, uh, let's say, a, a slide or a diagnosis is concerned. We see more and more, uh, as I'm a pathologist, I can speak of pathologists trying to share because now with, you know, digital aids, we can put a slide on online. And then, you know, if you have a doubt regarding a slide, you can get second opinions right away. So yes, people are using more and more social media platforms and not only for diagnosing. I think they have become a very good, they have become very good teaching models also. There are pathologists like, let's say, Gerard Gardner or um, I, I don't remember other names at the top of my head right now, but yeah, you have YouTube videos, you have Twitter exchanges over diagnosis, over slides, over conditions. There are teaching aids over there. Also, I see that, you know, there are many hospitals uh, or colleges right now which are trying to create like an image repository wherein you can go and, uh, you know, look at certain slides. It's online. So there is definitely a lot of, um, you know, social media conversation regarding slides and also regarding uh, digital imaging and AI applications around it. In fact, if you look at it every week, I see that, you know, there is always some of the other publication about an algorithm being published or, you know, somebody has uh, done research or there has they have developed a model and try to compare, you know, both human and uh, uh, machine uh, regarding a particular model or also what are the diagnostic features they have uh, learned from that. So I think that kind of conversation is very, very, uh, I would say, hot right now. I cannot wait to see what's going to happen. Um, I, I have, uh, I, I'm working on a, um, a business plan uh, for a spin-off. Mm -hmm. of, of Larvol. Uh, actually, I'm going to make it uh, a pre-announcement for the listeners 
the uh, the name of that new company is Comprima, Comprima.ai. Mm-hmm. And what Comprima is doing is that it's applying AI to cancer data in general, and in particular to the type of cancer data that Laval has been collecting and building a model around over the years. And uh, the, uh, the the playful uh, motto for the company is uh, AI will kill us, but before it's got before that is going to cure cancer. <laughs> and uh, it's a little it's a little pushing it, but uh, uh, because first uh, I don't think AI is going to really kill us, but uh, it's in a way a legitimate general question, and also uh, in a the, the the concept of curing cancer is a very complex question because of course um, cancer is in a way a disease of information. Copying DNA at some point is going to introduce mistakes. Some of these mistakes are going to lead to uncontrolled behavior from cell. So it, I, it, I like the way you are describing it. You know, for uh-huh. him also, I really like the way you've described it. So uh, it's it's a little bit of a double joke because we we cannot truly completely cure cancer. We can do a ton of things, but ultimately, cancer is is going to be a, a long term part of our life as human, and also. Uh, I, I don't necessarily believe AI is out there to kill us, although um, uh, it, it could make life and death de- decision in some ways. Uh, absolutely can, yeah. I mean, yeah. in many ways. Um, For sure it can. For sure it can. It, it's already I used think... to, to recommend certain... My, my wife had a... Uh, sorry to interrupt you. My, my wife told me the other day, oh, um, the uh, the AI sent one of my patients to hospice. Uh, and they mm-hmm. said, but he's not dying. Mm-hmm. And the AI decided, oh, that person goes to hospice, right? So uh, maybe it's happening already. I didn't mean to interrupt you. you, you no, no, saying... no worries, no worries. I was just because uh, you know I congratulate you for the spin-off which you've announced right now. So um, I know, like how you have helped your other, you know, the your uh, company grow. I'm sure you will do wonders with uh, this um, new venture of yours. But yes, I totally agree with you that, you know, data analytics is one of the top AI applications in healthcare today. I think with um, hospitals and research institutions will be able to use AI to analyze large amounts of data from, uh, you know, lab results or electronic health records or other sources to identify patterns or trends that researchers can use to predict future health outcomes. Also, I think, you know, AI with um, increasing computing capabilities will be able to analyze large amounts of data from, uh, let's say, patient records or clinical trials. And it will help providers identify which patients might be most likely to respond to a specific treatment. So yes, data, as we say, data is a new oil. So yeah, I agree with your idea that yes, data is going to be huge, not only um, in terms of uh, looking at things and analyzing, but also as a predictive tool for you know health outcomes or for linked to a specific treatment too. Uh, one of the sides of pathology that you mentioned is molecular pathology. Uh, So biomarkers, mutations, definition of a tumor, not from its tissue of origin, lung versus breast, etc., 
but based on its molecular making, a mutation in that gene. Um, uh, any comments on molecular pathology and how it's evolving and maybe where it's going? Because that would be an important part <coughs> of the fact that uh, cancer is increasingly becoming a data science. Yes. Uh, and that's a big part of it. So uh, any comments on uh, molecular pathology? Yeah, I think, you know, what we are seeing is that uh, as I feel that as a pathologist, we are now with the help of AI able, or at least, you know, there are studies which show that we can support oncologists by directly extracting prognostic and predictive biomarkers from tissue slides. So there are studies already happening with this. Also, I guess, you know, in the future, we will be able or clinicians may use this information, the molecular information, the clinical history, the genomic profile, the phenotypic characteristics to identify tailored treatments. So the combination of um, data statistics and these weighted observations in a neural network can be highly predictive. Also, apart from, you know, what we are discussing right now in terms of combining uh, clinical history or genomic profile or phenotypic characteristics. What I also feel that uh, apart from this, you will also have uh, AI help transform binary objective endpoints into, let's say, a more quantitative measure of disease severity. So that also, you know, uh, we already saw one of the Google AI applications trying to do that. Apart from what I mentioned to you, I think there will also be, you know, there are models which are being developed at the moment to examine minimal residual disease in terms of cancer and then combining it with phenotypic data to predict the likelihood of cancer relapse. So this will all help in, you know, developing more targeted therapy and effective treatment decisions. Yes. Um, Monica, we, we're getting toward the end of uh, this 30 minutes together. And um, as you know, at the end of each of these podcasts, uh, Shahir Sheikh, our producer, is saying, make sure to think about a takeaway for our listeners, something that um, uh, they will remember from our conversation today, something that perhaps will impact, uh, maybe you never know how a comment, uh, uh, a statement uh, impact uh, their life. So, Assume, Monica, that someone just joined now, didn't listen mm -hmm. to anything we said, nothing at mm -hmm. all, or mm -hmm. forgot, or didn't pay attention, was cooking, whatever. Uh, there is one sentence, one phrase, uh, one word uh, that you would like to leave for them as we close the podcast today. Uh, that's something interesting. And... Uh... Uh, I think I would like to say two things here, mm -hmm. For especially the first one I would say, you know, tailored to uh, pathologists and also clinicians and everybody in the field of healthcare is that AI is here to stay now. We have to be mindful with how we are going to use it in the future. It is like a nuclear energy, you know, you can light up a city, it can also blow up a city. So we need to be mindful of the use of AI in the future, but there is no escaping it. We need to adapt it. We need to, uh, you know, 
formulate the right regulations around it. We need to structure it well so that it gives us the best, so that we can extract the best out of AI as a tool for the pathologist or for the clinician. That's one thing for me. And the other thing which I think I already mentioned was that we do not have to just uh, develop a diagnostic algorithm in isolation. We need to completely digitize healthcare in general. Uh, Monica, uh, Dr. Lambasseni, thank you very, very much for taking the time. And um, thank you to our listeners. Looking forward to seeing you next week for another edition of Laval and Friends. Thank you, Lar. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you for having me here. Uh, au